Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and uh, you're listening today to the story of John G. Patton. Before we get to that, I want you to know we have over 3,400 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. You can go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and download the Church One app for sermon audio. Enter Hackberry House there. Well, my books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. We're in chapter, uh, let me see, 18, chapter 18 of the story of John G. Patton, the missionary to the cannibals of New Hebrides. Uh, the visit of HMS Cordelia is the name of this chapter. One morning, the Tannese, rushing towards me in great excitement, cried, Missy, Missy, there's a god or a ship on fire or, or something of fear coming over the sea. We see no flames, but it smokes like a volcano. Is it a spirit, a god, or a ship on fire? What is it? What is it? One party after another followed in quick succession, shouting the same questions in great alarm, to which I replied, I, I cannot go at once. I, I must dress first in my best clothes. It will likely be one of Queen Victoria's men of war coming to ask me if your conduct is good or bad, if you are stealing my property or threatening my life or how you are using me. They pled with me to go and see it, but I made much fuss about dressing and getting ready to meet the great chief on the vessel and would not go with them. The two principal chiefs now came running and asked, Missy, uh, will it be a ship of war? I called to them, I think it will, uh, uh, but I have no time to speak to you now. I must get on my best clothes. They said, Missy, only tell us, will he ask you if, if we have been stealing your things? Uh, I expect he will. And will you tell him? Oh, I must tell him the truth. If he asks, I will tell him. Oh, Missy, tell him not. Everything shall be brought back to you at once, and no one will be allowed again to steal from you. Well, uh, be quick, then. Uh, everything must be returned before he comes. Away, away, and let me get ready to meet the great chief on the man of war. Hitherto, no thief could ever be found, and no chief had power to cause anything to be restored to me. But now, in an incredibly brief space of time, one came running to the mission house with a pot, another with a pan, another with a blanket, others with knives, forks, plates, all sorts of stolen property. The chiefs called me to receive these things, but I replied, lay them all down at the door. Uh, bring everything together quickly. I, I, I have no time to speak with you. Well, I delayed my getting ready, enjoying mischievously the magical effect of an approaching vessel that might bring penalty to thieves. At last, the chiefs, running in breathless haste, called out to me, Missy, Missy, do tell us, is the stolen property all here? Uh, of course, I could not tell, but running out, I, I looked on the promiscuous heap of my belongings and said, uh, I don't see the lid of the kettle there yet. One chief said, No, Missy, it's on the other side of the island, uh, but tell him not. Uh, tell him I have sent for it. It will be here tomorrow. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you have brought back so much. And now if you three chiefs, Nauka, Miyaki, Noar, do not run away when he comes, he will not likely punish you. But if you and your people run away, he will ask me why you are afraid. 
and I will be forced to tell him. Keep near me, and you are all safe. Only there must be no more stealing from me. Oh, we are in black fear, but we will keep near you, and our bad conduct to you is done. Well, the charm and joy of that morning are fresh to me still when HMS Cordelia, Captain Vernon, steamed into our lovely harbor. The commander, having heard rumors of my dangers on Tana, kindly came on shore as soon as the ship cast anchor with two boats and a number of his officers and men so far armed. He was dressed in splendid uniform, being a a tall and handsome man, and he and his attendants made a grand and imposing show. On seeing Captain Vernon's boat nearing the shore and the men glittering in gold lace and arms, Miyaki, the chief, left my side on the beach and rushed toward his village. I concluded that he had run for it through terror, but he had other and more civilized intentions in his heathen head. Having obtained from some trader or visitor in previous days a soldier's old red coat, he had resolved to rise to the occasion and appear in his best before the captain and his men. As I was shaking hands with them and welcoming them to Tana, Miyaki returned with the short red coat on, buttoned tightly around his otherwise naked body, and uh, surmounted by his ugly painted face with uh, long whipcords of twisted hair, It completely spoiled any appearance that he might otherwise have had of of savage freedom, made him look a a dirty and insignificant creature. The captain was talking to me. His men stood in order nearby. Uh, To my eyes, oh, how charming a glimpse of home life, when Miyaki marched up and took his place most consequentially at my side. He felt himself the most important personage in the scene, and with an attempt at haughty dignity, he began to survey the visitors. All eyes were fixed on the impudent little man, and the captain asked, What sort of a character is this? I said, This is Miyaki, our great war chief. And I whispered to the captain to be on his guard, as this man knew a little English and might understand or misunderstand just enough to make it afterwards dangerous to me. The captain only muttered, the contemptible creature, but such words were far enough beyond Miyaki's vocabulary, so he looked on and grinned complacently. At last he said, Missy, uh, this great chief whom Queen Victoria has sent to visit you in her man of war, uh, cannot go over the whole of this island so as to be seen by all our people, and I wish you to ask him if he will stand by a tree. Allow me to put a spear on the ground at his heel, and we will make a nick in it at the top of his head, and the spear will be sent around to the island to let all the people see how tall this great man is. They were delighted at the good captain agreeing to their simple request, and that spear was exhibited to thousands, as the vessel, her commander, officers, and men were afterwards talked of round and round the island. Captain Vernon was extremely kind and offered to do anything in his power for me and thus left alone on the island amongst such savages. But as my main difficulties were connected with my spiritual work amongst them, rousing up their cruel prejudices, I did not see his kindness could effectually interpose. At his suggestion, however, I sent a general invitation to all the chiefs within reach 
to meet the captain next morning at my house. True to their instincts of suspicion and fear, they dispatched all their women and the children to the beach on the opposite side of the island, beyond reach of danger. Next morning, my house was crowded with armed men, manifestly much afraid. Punctually at the hour appointed, 10 a.m., the captain came on shore, and soon thereafter twenty chiefs were seated with him in my house. He very kindly spent about an hour giving them wise counsels and warning them against outrages on strangers, all calculated to secure our safety and advance the interests of our mission work. He then invited all the chiefs to go on board and see his vessel. They were taken to see the armory, and the sight of the big guns running so easily on rails vastly astonished them. He then placed them round us on deck and showed them two shells discharged towards the ocean, at which, as they burst and fell far off, splash, splashing into the water, the terror of the natives visibly increased. But when he sent a large ball crashing through a coconut grove, breaking the trees like straws and cutting its way clear and swift, they were quite dumbfounded and pled to be again set safely on shore. After receiving each some small gift, however, they were reconciled to the situation and returned immensely interested in all that they had seen. Doubtless, many a wild romance was spun by these savage heads in trying to describe and hand down to others the wonders of the fire god of the sea and the captain of the great white queen. How easily it all lends itself to the service of poetry and myth. Chapter 19 is called Noble Old Abraham. Fever had now attacked me fourteen times severely, with slighter recurring attacks almost continuously after my first three months on the island, and I now felt the necessity of taking the hint of the Tannese chief before referred to to sleep on the higher ground. Having also received medical counsel to the same effect, though indeed experience was painfully sufficient testimony, I resolved to remove my house and began to look about for a suitable site. There rose behind my present site a hill about two hundred feet high, surrounded on all sides by a valley, and swept by the breezes of the trade winds being only separated from the ocean by a narrow neck of land. On this I had set my heart, there was room for a mission house and a church, for which indeed nature seemed to have adapted it. I proceeded to buy up every claim by the natives to any portion of the hill, paying each publicly and in turn, so that there might be no trouble afterwards. I then purchased from a trader the deck planks of a shipwrecked vessel, with which to construct a house of two apartments, a bedroom, and a small storeroom adjoining it to which I proposed to transfer and add the old house as soon as I was able. Just at this juncture, the fever smote me again, more severely than ever. My weakness after this attack was so great that I felt as if I never could rally again. With the help of my faithful Anitiamese teacher, Abraham, and his wife, however, I made what appeared my last effort to creep. I could not climb up the hill, to get a breath of wholesome air. When about two-thirds up the hill, I became so faint that I concluded I was dying. 
lying down on the ground, sloped against the root of a tree to keep me from rolling to the bottom, I took farewell of old Abraham, of my mission work, and of everything around. In this weak state I lay, watched over by my faithful companion, and fell into a quiet sleep. When consciousness returned, I felt a little stronger, and a faint gleam of hope and life came back to my soul. Abraham and his devoted wife, Nafatu, lifted me and carried me to the top of the hill. There they laid me on coconut leaves on the ground and erected over me a shade or screen of the same. And there the two faithful souls, inspired surely by something diviner even than mere human pity, gave me the coconut juice to drink and fed me with native food and kept me living. I know not for how long. Consciousness did, however, fully return. The trade wind refreshed me day by day. The Tannese seemed to have given me up for dead, and providentially none of them looked near us for many days. Amazingly, my strength returned, and I began planning about my new house on the hill. Afraid again to sleep at the old site, I slept under the tree, and sheltered by the coconut leaf screen while preparing my new bedroom. Here again, but for these faithful souls, the Anitiamese teacher and his wife, I must have been baffled and would have died in the effort. The planks of the wreck and all other articles required, they fetched and carried, and it taxed my utmost strength to get them in some way planted together, but life depended on it. It was at length accomplished, and after that time I suffered comparatively little from anything like continuous attacks of fever. That noble old soul, Abraham, stood by me as an angel of God in sickness and in danger. He went at my side wherever I had to go. He helped me willingly to the last inch of strength in all that I had to do. And it was perfectly manifest that he was doing all this not from mere human love, but for the sake of Jesus. That man had been a cannibal in his heathen days, but by the grace of God there he stood, verily, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Any trust, however sacred or valuable, could be absolutely reposed in him. And in trial or danger, I was often refreshed by that old teacher's prayers, as I used to be by the prayers of my saintly father in my childhood's home. No white man could have been more valuable helper to me in my perilous circumstances, and no person, white or black, could have shown more fearless and chivalrous devotion. When I have heard or read the, uh, the, the shallow objections of irreligious scribblers and talkers hinting that there was no reality in conversions and that mission effort was but waste, oh, how my heart has yearned to plant them just one week on Tana with the natural man all around in the person of cannibal and heathen and only the one spiritual man in the person of the converted Abraham nursing them, feeding them, saving them for the love of Jesus, that I might just learn how many hours it took to convince them that Christ in man was a reality after all. All the skepticism of Europe would hide its head in foolish shame, and all its doubts would dissolve under one glance of the new light that Jesus, and Jesus alone, pours from the converted cannibal's eye. Amen. 
Next time, chapter 20, a typical South Sea trader. That's with a D. I'm not saying traitor, but trader, T-R-A-D-E-R. And I hope you'll be able to come back at that time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.